0: Welcome to our Cato Institute conversation with P.J. O'Rourke. I'm David Bowes, Executive Vice President of Cato. Throughout this program, we'll be taking questions, and you can submit them uh, via the Cato Institute webpage, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, and use the hashtag CatoEvents. We have many distinguished scholars at the Cato Institute, scholars in constitutional studies, economics, foreign policy, education, and so on. But perhaps our most distinguished scholar, at least if we can agree that it depends on what the meaning of distinguished is, is our HL Mencken research fellow, PJ O'Rourke. I always say I've sort of grown up with PJ. When I was in college, the most popular magazine on campus was National Lampoon, which he edited. And I remember quite a few funny bits from National Lampoon, but I can't quote them because I think they all involve drug use, ethnic stereotypes, or gender relations. And they're all forbidden now. He then moved on to Rolling Stone, where he was the foreign affairs desk chief, which was totally cool because they paid him to travel wherever he wanted. The why he wanted to travel to Beirut and to a televangelist retirement village was always kind of mystifying. And then as he moved out of the rock and roll stage and into the age of sober reflection, he became a correspondent for the soberest magazine in America, the Atlantic Monthly. He wrote soberly about Medicare reform, social security reform, campaign finance reform, and other adult topics. And now as he moves into the age of worrying about retirement and college tuitions, he's editing a magazine on finance and investment. You may judge its seriousness by the fact that it ran an article by me. It's online, it's free, and it's called American Consequences. By my count, P.J. is the author of 20 books, including Holidays in Hell, Parliament of Whores, All the Trouble in the World, and Eat the Rich. He's one of the funniest writers around. Indeed, he has more citations in the Penguin Dictionary of Humorous Quotations than any other living writer. But what people often miss when they talk about his humor is what a good reporter and what an insightful analyst he is. Parliament of Whores is a very funny book, but it's also a very perceptive analysis of politics in a modern democracy. And if you read Eat the Rich, you'll learn more about how countries get rich and why they don't than in a whole year of economics at most colleges. That's why I recommend those two books as a Christmas gift. Give your friends and family a very inexpensive college course in political science and economics. And now he has taken his careful study of politics and economics and his need to pay college tuitions and his existential despair to write his latest book, A Cry from the Far Middle. So it's a pleasure to welcome the H.L. Mencken Research Fellow of the Cato Institute, P.J. O'Rourke. So, P.J., welcome back to the Cato Institute microphone. And let's start by asking, what is the far middle?
1: Well, I think it's where we libertarians have always been, Um, uh, Radical moderates, militant moderates even. We, uh, you know, get out of our way, we own the middle of the road. We've always found ourselves, I think everyone who feels himself to be a libertarian has always found him or herself to be caught between the poles of the angry left and the angry right trying to be reasonable. In fact, it's not just the angry left and the angry right. It's just the regular left, or even the liberals, and the regular right, and the social conservatives. We've always gone straight down the middle, trying to use logic. And boy, we better uh, 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 we better get our message out right now, because uh, the country seems to have lost that any sense of that.
0: You know. Way back in 1980, I traveled with the libertarian presidential candidate, Ed Clark, and for a couple of days, Tom Reed of the Washington Post traveled with us, and he said, well, you know, you guys are interesting, but you're so extreme, you'll never, uh, you'll never make it. And I said, you know what's extreme? Sending American boys to die in countries they've never heard of. Taking half of a working man's wages. That's extremism.
1: Exactly. I mean, you know, the idea that there's such a thing as an extreme libertarian is, uh, it's nonsense. Um, what what people mean when they say that is actually an anarchist. And uh, none of us are in favor of anarchism. I mean, we're in favor of rule of law. We're in favor of the individual. We're in favor of individual liberty, individual dignity, and individual responsibility, that last one being a tougher sell point uh but the there is nothing a, 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 a anarchy I, I i spent 20 years as a war reporter i've been to mogadishu i know exactly what anarchy looks like and i think over this summer um some people in the united states got a little idea what anarchy looks like how well it worked in portland it's not what we're about if there's anything extreme about us it's that we're extremely reasonable that we try to think things through that that, that, that we try to apply logic to the um, the heat and the and, and, and the heat and the swamp, the mess, the sludge um, of, of politics from all sides, which is not very. But politics is really not a very logical thing, and it and it badly needs logic
0: applied to. It. Well, that's one of the problems. Applying reason and logic may make you extreme in a world of left and right wingers. At Cato, we've talked about a libertarian center of civil rights, civil liberties, lower taxes, free trade, and staying out of other people's business and avoiding the extreme agendas of left and right. But can libertarians and moderates or centrists really cohabit?
1: At the moment, um, it's tough. I mean, I think a lot of people have a gut feeling, it's called common sense, um, that what we're saying makes common sense and that, that, that our attitudes make common sense. What, what our attitudes and our positions and our research and our analysis does not make is headlines. Um, we don't fall into the if it, lead, if it bleeds, it leads paradigm of, of, of the 24-hour modern news cycle. And of course, the other half of that is if it slees it leads. And we're just not sleazy and violent enough to to uh, attract the kind of attention that we need to attract at the moment to get people away from the the as you point out the the extremism uh, 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 of their views. I mean, one of the things that's, that's fundamental to libertarianism is that that we're willing to use logic and reason and listen to logic and reason to change our minds. Um, And we are faced with uh, a group of people at the moment who are not about to change their minds, and some of
0: them you worry about whether they've got a mind to change. There's a lot of talk about socialism uh, this summer, this past season. Um, I saw a A poll today that said 30% of Americans have a positive image of socialism, although only one-third of those could actually describe accurately what socialism was. Another humorist that I like, uh, Fran Lebowitz, not to be confused with Fawn Lebowitz of Animal House, Uh, wrote years ago that as a high school student, she grew up very anti-communist because that's what they taught her in her high school. And then in college, she became pretty leftist, like, you know, anti-American, pro-communist. But then she said she discovered in uh, a little bit of maturity beyond college that from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs, is not a decision I care to leave to politicians, For I do not believe that an ability to comment humorously on the passing scene would carry much weight with one's comrades.
1: Truer words were ne'er spoke. Thank you, Fran. Uh, I actually address that uh, uh, very problem in my book, which is uh, basically I ask, why are kids commies? Why are so many young people so left wing well, besides the fact that they have forgotten um, the they, they, they're two, they're young. First, they're young, so they've forgotten what the real horrors of communism are like. For you know, my daughters, for, I figured I did the math. Uh, the you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall is is as long ago as the Great Depression uh, is for me and uh, something like China opening itself to the beginnings of of free trade, free market principles, that's as far back in history as the uh, Kellogg-Brand Peace Pact of the 1920s is for me. They don't remember how bad, how truly bad socialism, when it gets all armed up and fully running, how bad that can be. I mean, they, they think it's just, you know, either Venezuela, which is you know some sort of weird anomaly, or Cuba, where the the communism comes with rum and cokes and kumbaya singing and and old Chevy's, so they don't really get that. But the but the thing that they really don't get is that Marxist maxim, um, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. You cannot have a free society that runs under that principle, but there is one little part of society that actually does operate on from each according to his ability to each according to his need and that part is the kid is the part of society that kids are most familiar with it's called a family within a family kids are growing up there's mom and dad doing what they can to provide the kids with what they need. And so it's very tempting to carry this from each according to his ability to each according to his need, natural childish attitude into young adulthood, alas.
0: That's right. You know, Hayek talked about that, I think, as the atavism of social justice, that we have this atavistic, instinctive sense that in the small group, the family, the clan, uh, the group moving from place to place, 10,000, 100,000 years ago, you did operate on everybody works together to, to, to get the food and then everybody works together to eat it as they need it. And we do that in the family and it's hard maybe to make the abstraction that it works in a family, it doesn't work in a big society. You can't scale it up. You can't scale it up. It's a
1: sweet feeling. We understand why people feel this way. And, you know, we as libertarians don't want others to suffer or be deprived if they're incapable of taking care of themselves. We're, we're, we're not like some some sort of heartless social Darwinists uh, at all. But you can't take the family and scale it up to the political uh, 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 to, to, to the size of a nation. And the reason you can't do that is this thing called government, which is necessary. Once you get a certain number of people and in, 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 in concentrated in one place, you need something called government. And government operates on the basis of force in the way that a family or a small group, a commune, a collective, uh, hunter, hunter-gatherer tribe, operates on persuasion, it operates on love, it operates on close personal ties. You cannot have close personal ties with 320 million people. And so we create this thing called government, which was supposed to be very limited, limited to those problems that the individual or the family or the small group, civil society as we would call it, limited to to the government was supposed to be limited to taking care of those problems like war, um, um, which we cannot take care of as a family. Um, Notice that it's gotten, its it's remit has gotten somewhat larger. It seems to have overspilled its bounds a bit. But that government is in place always at the point of a gun, even in the least little thing. Uh, You get a traffic ticket and you don't pay that ticket, Um, you're going to get fined. And if you don't pay that fine, uh you're going to go to jail and 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 if you try to escape from jail they'll shoot you everything right down to the parking meter on the corner of your street is in when it's enforced by government is enforced by force
0: I mentioned earlier that I thought your two books, Parliament of Whores and Eat the Rich, are better than a college course in political economy. And I should say that for people who won't read even two short readable books, they could just start with your chapter Big Fat Politics in the new book.
1: (laughs) I think they could. Yeah, I try to do my best to, to sort of boil this down, you know. Uh, And, uh, you know, the parking ticket is one example. The other example is, you know, every time you ask government to do something, however lovely that thing seems to be, you are asking them to do it um, uh, uh, while a gun is pointed to the head of the people who um, are going to pay for the thing that government does. So I think one should always ask oneself, would I shoot my mother, would I hold my mother at gunpoint, let's not go so far as to shoot her, but would I hold my mother at at gunpoint in order to accomplish what I've asked the government to accomplish? So uh, so would I hold my mother at gunpoint to pave I-95? I personally think that's something that could be privately done without any danger to my mom. Um, Bless her heart, she's no longer with us. Um, uh, But, you know, would I hold my mom at gunpoint to save us from being overrun by Nazis? Yeah, I might. (laughs) I mean, being overrun by Nazis would be an extremely, extremely bad thing. Might hold mom at gunpoint for that, but not to pay pay at I-95 or
0: to deliver a package to my post office box. Now, you're worrying a lot in here about polarization. We worry a lot at Cato about polarization what happens to liberalism if everybody's divided between socialism on the left and, and nationalism and protectionism on the right. But you also suggest in the book that political polarization is a sign of something good.
1: Yes, in this one one respect. Uh, when you have a nation that is so internally polarized as we do screaming and yelling, uh, yelling at each other, it does indicate, at least in the case of the United States, historically speaking, it does indicate that we're not under exterior threat, that we're not under sufficient exterior threat to bring us all together. America is not a naturally uh, is not a naturally homogeneous country. Uh, we, we, we aren't joined by ties of ethnicity, barely even joined by ties of language we're not uh, uh united by ties of ancient territory the territory is an ancient it wasn't ours in the first place and we've got this frontier more mentality that means we always think there's an infinite more amount of territory out there we go to mars um, <clears throat> what binds us together is uh, is in, in some ways artificial it's a it's a you know a a, a liberty and rule of law and we tend to unite around that liberty and that rule of law when we're under real exterior threat, when Pearl Harbor is bombed, when 9-11 happens. Uh, uh, we come together. So it's a kind of luxury for us in, in the United States, a diverse and rather quarrelsome group of people that we are. It's a kind of luxury to have our quarrels out in the open with lots of screaming and yelling in the street and and, and nonsense on the internet and 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 from the White House and like strange statements from from, from the Democrats in Congress, um, we're, we're indulging ourselves. It shows us that, in, in a way, it shows us that we're in pretty good shape. Now, you might think that, that, that the COVID epidemic would bring us all together, um, but apparently um, uh, a, 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 a domestic sickness is not the same as a foreign threat
0: in terms of Causing unity among americans you uh you finished this book before the pandemic laid waste to everything but i i noticed that you wrote an article recently um where you uh talked about the uh, the pandemic and you did say that you wondered if one day there would be a great novel coming out of this called on the couch <laughs> yes
1: Yes, the Jack Kerouac of today who can't leave his mother's house. Where, incidentally, Jack was living um, in between times, running up and down the United States and on, on the road. Uh, it is a it is certainly a strange phenomenon. One of the things that worries me is that you know you might think that after a period, not only with the um, um, uh, with the pandemic, but also with all the um, uh, the George Floyd protests and the chaos that's come from that, and the looting and rioting, and the and the pretty ugly counter-protesting, uh, you, you might think we might emerge from all of this um, wanting a new, more pragmatic, more sensible, limited idea of what the government is and what it does and what it should be. On the other hand spending seven months locked in the house with all our grievances festering and all our uh, 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 grudges uh, 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 growing and getting angry and frustrated uh, and uh, this might lead us to emerge from 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 all this angrier at each other than ever because that's sometimes how human nature works and I say in in, in the book I actually I, I said uh, um, that I'm kind of I'm betting on human nature, and
0: and unfortunately, I don't mean that in a good way. (laughs) I should point out that we will be taking questions from all of you, uh, which you can submit by way of our webpage, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and use the hashtag CatoEvents. Right now, I have to, uh, as a sort of personal privilege, note that as a graduate of Vanderbilt University, I take exception to your suggestion that Commodore Vanderbilt went to yacht races. He was a rough and tumble guy who made his own money. He didn't have time for wealth races. It's his children and his grandchildren who went to the well the yacht races.
1: My bad David uh, and I, my apologies to You probably to don't the even Commodore. remember that I just figured why. <laughs> i do actually i was talking about I, I wrote a piece in here about how uh one way we could cut down on the amount of envy material envy that we feel um uh, uh toward the super rich in the united states uh is to make them uh make the rich uncomfortable get them out of their t-shirts you know and their little bunny slippers and uh, make sure that they're back in top hats and part of that was I said you know it used to be that like we didn't really envy the rich that much because being rich didn't look like it was that much fun you had to wear all these starchy clothes and you even had to wear like you know they, they had strange sports like yacht racing and breaking your neck playing polo and hitting things with a stick in the middle of nowhere called golf you know and even for those things you had to dress up in funny clothes you didn't want to show up at the yacht race you know in your in your plus fours and your and your plaid cap from the golf course um, where you'd be snickered out of the yacht club and somehow or other because of commodore vanderbilt being called commodore i mistakenly stuck him at a yacht race (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, he had he had a small boat, and then he had a lot of small boats, and the boats got bigger. And I looked it up. I actually learned something. Hey, I learned something from reading your book because it prompted me to go read something else. I know, uh, but the first I found for out everything. Fact,
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: when he was older, he did in fact build himself an incredible. Yacht and take his whole family on a trip to Europe that got written up in the newspapers and everything. So yes, there was a lot of celebration of the wealthy back then. But you're right, uh, it was not all that pleasant. Whereas these days, you know, Bill Gates can uh, can dress like everybody else and go where he wants to at an instant. Um, those things are those things are more attractive. I can see envying that more than envying the plus four world so do you think you know oh oh, i'm sorry i didn't mean i I just wanted to finish
1: up a thought about uh uh, jeff zuckerberg is like wearing his underwear in public you know i guess i guess if you're worth a zillion dollars you can wear your underwear in public but honestly he gives this uh impression that like his mom is still sewing name tags in in, into the back of his like t-shirts and shorts um for when he goes off to summer camp really i think if 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 Jeff is going to face down all the regulatory pressure on him uh, in Congress, um, uh, he <laughs> learned to tie a necktie, dude.
0: Well, sorry, David, you had to cut had to you off in go the middle in of the question. Right, <laughs> um, when Zuckerberg did have to go hat in hand to Congress, um, he did actually wear a suit and tie. But that's the only time I've seen that. What I was going to ask was, you wrote an inaugural address in the book. Are you hopeful that either candidate will give that address?
1: No, no. <laughs> I wrote an inaugural address which when, in which the president says, basically, I'm, you know... The, the office of the president isn't even mentioned until about page eight or nine of the Constitution. Actually, the vice president, as president of the Senate, gets mentioned before the presidency does in in, in the Constitution. He said, "You know, and I'm I'm commander in chief, although it's it's Congress that has the power to to to, to make war and make peace, not me. Uh, so I'm the titular uh, uh, commander in chief." And otherwise, my duty is to make sure that the laws that are passed by Congress are are enforced, although I'm not given any particular mechanism by which um, to enforce them other than the sort of moral suasion of being president of the United States. So really, don't credit me with all the good things that happen in the United States. And don't blame me for all the bad things that that are going to happen in the United States. You know, I'm just here. I'm just sort of like the national janitor. I uh, mean, I'm um, supposed to keep the um, keep the halls clear and make sure the lockers are all closed. Uh, but I don't think we're ever going to hear that. We, we have elevated the presidency to such a um, uh, re- ridiculous executive office um, that we're not going to be hearing that from anybody
0: soon. Well, that's probably right. Gene Healy wrote a book called The Cult of the Presidency. There is that cult, and there's also just the idea that it it was envisioned in the Constitution that Congress would make the laws and the president would carry them out, and now we wait for the president to give us a budget. Congress should be writing a budget, and then the president signs it, unless it's unconstitutional, in which case he should veto it. Right,
1: simple enough. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful little constitution. You can, you can, you can kind of, you know, if you can read small type, you can kind of get it on six or eight index cards, um, as opposed to, say, the EU constitution, which even the members of the EU couldn't stand and voted down. That thing's like 400 and some pages long and gets into how much, um, uh, how much protein and how much fat are allowable in pork sausage. It gets down to that level of detail.
0: Um, which is probably why the EU is having the problems it is right now. Let me take a question from Kevin Moore, who says, what, we, we we're talking a lot about polarization, divided land. That's the t- subtitle of the book, Dispatches from a Divided Land. What parallels or differences do you see between now and the late 60s and early 70s, which were also a pretty tumultuous and angry period?
1: Yeah, it's tempting to compare the two and the distance in time is sufficient that it allows for facile uh, 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 comparisons. But I actually think that the fundamental differences here are very, very different. Um, the, the, the anger, the divisiveness, um, and indeed the violence in the 1960s um, had to do with some very, very fundamental um, uh, issues. There was a national draft uh, where we were dragging people, you know, out of homes and schools and sending them off to a place they'd never heard of to shoot people they'd never met. And what was worse, those people were going to shoot back. And, there you know, it, it, the Vietnam War was, it was a, an example of, of, of government um, just being, getting completely out of hand and killing uh, uh, 50,000 American kids. Uh, That was one element in the divisiveness of the 60s. Another element in the divisiveness of the 60s was that the laws about racial discrimination were not yet really a settled case. Uh, It wasn't until the Civil Rights Act had been passed and had begun to be enforced um, so there was a tr- there was tremendous legalized injustice in the United States, um, mostly at a state level, mostly in the South, but not exclusively in the South. Uh, and uh, people were angry. People died uh, for this. People sacrificed their lives to fight this. Uh, people murdered to defend this terrible idea. Um, that was a big, big question, and the, the, that it resulted in, in a certain amount of violence is, is, is not 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 a surprising factor. Then you had a kind of change in social mores that was going on between the older generation, the, the greatest generation, and the younger generation, the baby boom, um, that we really don't have anything that's comparable to right now. Um, You you had huge changes in attitudes about about sexuality of all kinds, about drug use, but about more fundamental things too. Uh, A lot of the arguments about over the dinner table weren't weren't about like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. A lot of them were about racial relations. Um, A lot lot of them were about the war. Uh, A lot of them were about the fundamentally. in in many ways, libertarian attitude uh, of of the younger generation toward government versus a a very conservative authoritarian attitude uh, that had had grown up, I think, partly as a result of the Depression and and, and World War II um, uh, among the older generation. So the issues that divided us in the 1960s and early 1970s were actually Issues of greater moment, greater import, uh, than the issues that are dividing us now.
0: Matt Prickett wants to know, do you think the current brands of left and right populism will drive more people like him to a more classical liberal or libertarian center, wanting to reject both of these extremes?
1: Oh, from your mouth to God's ear. Let us hope so. Uh, in the, net, the, the societies do not sustain themselves well in chaos. Societies uh, are self-organizing, and they tend to organize their way out of the chaotic experiences that, uh, such as the experiences we're having right now. And so it is. It is my greatest wish and hope, and prayer indeed, um, that, uh, 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 that that people will react. To the extremists on, on the left and the right, with with an idea, not that they should agree about everything. I, I don't even want um, old-fashioned liberalism and old-fashioned, you know, um, um, conservatism to go away. I just want people to be able to argue with each other in rational terms about this. You know, the heart of the liberals is quite, quite nice and quite sweet, and wants everything to be good for everybody. And the brain of the conservatives is quite, can be quite sharp. How the heck are we going to pay for this? And what about the unintended consequences? And I just, you know, want to go back to having that sensible argument. And I think I, it is my hope that that will drive a lot of people
0: in in into our fold. I hope so. Another question from the internet. The speaker said government always relies on force, but there's an important difference between illegitimate and legitimate force based on consent. In a democracy, I agree to, for instance, be fined by the police for running a red light. What are the implications of this difference for libertarians?
1: Right. You know, the the government has, and it ought to have, a legal monopoly on deadly force. I mean, that's what we put. We don't want everything settled by duels or by gunfights at the OK Corral. So we deliberately create a construct that has a legal monopoly on deadly force. And, um, but uh, what, what can happen under those circumstances is that having given this authority, in a sense, to a third party, that third party can get out of hand. I mean, I'm, I have no sympathy with the with the kind of rioting and, and vandalism, and destruction, and looting that's gone on uh, in recent months. On the other hand, you know, we at the Cato Institute have been uh, protesting for for years about the militarization of the police and about turning police into an occupying force within certain neighborhoods instead of being the sort of wardens of public order that that, 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 that they should be. So while I'm not, well I don't have a lot of sympathy with the riots, I do have certain sympathy for what set them off.
0: Carl asks, is there any possibility of curbing the use of executive orders by this and future presidents? I guess we can't curb them in the past presidents.
1: That would be tough. Yeah, that would require the time machine that we all wish we had, and that just keeps not showing up uh, in in the... um, um, Yeah, I keep waiting to be able to order that on Amazon, but but no dice. Um, Again, you would think that the lesson of the Vietnam War would have been to have fully returned the uh, war-making powers to Congress to to keep presidents from from military intrusions on their own where they like sometimes go to Congress for some kind of permission and sometimes don't uh, sort of according to their mood as far as I can tell. Um, But we didn't really seem to learn that lesson from Vietnam War and I am not too optimistic about us learning the lesson about executive orders which have been abused. By not only this president, but like the last president, the president before last, the president before that, going on back down to to certainly to the time of LBJ, maybe more all the way down to the time of Woodrow Wilson. We just don't seem to be able to learn that Congress is so busy getting reelected. It doesn't seem to remember that it's supposed to be the law, create the law of the land.
0: and has the power
1: to declare war yes yes it has all it has all the powers that the that, 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 that the presidency has taken and you know this goes back to our, one of our very best presidents uh it was uh it was probably lincoln who who started this trend to a to a more powerful presidency I think it really came into force. Um, it came into force as an attitude under Teddy Roosevelt and it as a practice under Woodrow Wilson. But it is something with a long history. We've been we have three branches of our government, and one of them has been eating most of the other. and and then of course, there, uh, uh, there's been a tendency from both by both the executive and the legislative branch to throw things into the lap of the Supreme Court that probably don't belong there. So um, yeah, we're getting this, we have this tripod that that our government stands on and one or maybe two, maybe all three of the legs are getting pretty shaky.
0: Deborah says she heard you speak at the University of Wisconsin many years ago and she recalls you said you weren't a libertarian. Have you changed?
1: I have a feeling that what she recalls is, is, I was asked whether I was a member of the Libertarian Party, and um, to which my answer would be, and still is, no. Um, I I fall into probably the more conservative side of of libertarianism. Uh, There are sometimes, uh, but of course, it's it's the duty and and the, uh, and the root and the and the branch of libertarianism to be constantly disagreeing with each other. So I, you know, I shouldn't really bring up That's any internal true. libertarian disagreements. <laughs> you don't think so? I th- because I think we are people who are actually are <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was open about. to argument. Oh, <laughs> you are speaking with irony. <laughs> yeah, we're forever like. But I think I think I think the question had been about libertarian party. And the reason that I said no is that I don't consider the United States, usually at least, to be a country that has what uh, Europeans would recognize as political parties. I mean, you 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 can't get thrown out of one of our parties if if you donate so much as a nickel to to, to either side, uh, you have in effect. joined that party. There's no card to carry around. The parties don't have a credo or a, it's just too two vague tendencies, two big Venn diagrams that sometimes have a lot of overlap and sometimes don't. It's you know it's one tendency that thinks government should solve our problems and another tendency th- that thinks government is our problem. Uh, and and you, you can hold those two ideas in your mind at the same time as anybody who's have, ever had to sit down in a government office and fill out a bunch of government forms. Has simultaneously thought government should fix this problem and government is the problem, so they're not mutually exclusive. So I, I, I'm not a libertarian party member because I don't consider America to, to be a, 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 a political party system. And also because um, I, I, I've been involved for all these years, with the, deeply involved with the Cato Institute, and our job is to be nonpartisan. Our job is to analyze things and put that analysis out there as forcefully as we can, and hope that that analysis makes you know a big difference uh, in in the way legislators and, and bureaucrats and executives think about things. Um, and sometimes it does. By golly, um, uh, not as often as I'd like, but sometimes it does. So you know, I, I consider it in a way. Um, Libertarianism to me is not a political position. It's a, it, it's a form of analysis, fundamentally a moral form of analysis, which is, as I said earlier, it's about the individual. It's about individual liberty, individual dignity, and individual responsibility. And it's a way of looking at every sort of question and issue largely through that lens of individual liberty or that triple lens of
0: individual liberty, individual dignity and individual responsibility. So I see some interesting uh, questions about history coming up here. Steve from Kansas City wants to know, in past culture wars, was there the degree of intolerance to opposing points of view that we see today? Well the answer to that is yes you
1: bet. I mean there there there, there were lynchings about this uh sort of thing. It's it's uh, uh th- th- this is nothing new and the degree of violence with which this current culture war is being um, um, uh is being conducted is uh by historical standards uh, rather moderate. I mean, look to the French Revolution if you want to see a real culture war. You know, we, we don't have the Trumbulls rolling through the street, at least not yet. I mean, like people people say, oh, America's never been this divided. And I go, well, there was 1861. That looked pretty divided to me, you know. Say what you will about modern America. Fort Sumter is not
0: taking any incoming Well, that's that's right. There was, maybe there was the 1960s. There was definitely the 1860s. And I think it was Gordon Wood, I heard uh, not long ago say. And l- let me tell you about the 1790s, the battles between the Federalists and the uh, Jeffersonians, which partly was over American attitudes toward the French Revolution. So, yeah, we have gone through this before. Now, yeah. the distinguished Professor Bill Fischel. Challenges you, is the United States not more libertarian than it was 50 years ago? He says we're not at war. People can marry whoever they want. Taxes aren't much higher, at least as a percent of income, than they were 50 years ago. So that sounds like a progress. How'd we get here?
1: Well, I'd like to think that we helped here at the Cato Institute. And I I, I agree with Professor Fisher. Uh, America is a more libertarian. Um, uh, uh, it's a much more libertarian society than it was 50 years ago, let alone 60 or 70 years ago. And I'm old enough to remember. You know? uh, and and, and it's, it, that shows me that there's a great deal of libertarianism in the American heart. Um, I think that um, it's hard for people to identify as libertarians, partly because I pointed, as I pointed out, it's it, 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 it's a way of analyzing things more than it is really a political identity. Um, But uh, um, yes, I mean, there is a strong libertarian streak, always has been a strong libertarian streak in in the United States. And we do act upon it. Uh, Maybe two steps forward, one step back. It it, it may have its pauses um, and it, it may not get the press that it deserves. Um, because a lot of the good is quiet good, and that doesn't make news.
0: And here's a sort of related question from a young man who once worked for the Cato Institute and then left and was never heard from again, Max Pappas, who says, I believe it was little orphan (laughs) Annie who said the libertarian moment is always a day away. Was she right, or is it more like Julian Sol- Simon wrote, it's getting better all the time?
1: Well, it's a little bit of both. You know, I mean, I'd like to see Max. Hello. <laughs> I'm glad you're watching. Max has had a, quite a distinguished career since he, he he worked for Cato, and he worked for me, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, and he's an absolutely brilliant guy. And uh, he's now a serious Silicon Valley uh uh, executive, and uh, we 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 won't burden um, him with a more more direct description of his job. But anyway, Max, yeah, it's always a day away. There is that, but like the Orphan Annie, it has a happy ending, um, and uh, and we need to stay cheerful, like Annie did.
0: Now you said in your book that the Gulf War was a rare foreign policy success. But here we are, 30 years later, we're still at war in the Gulf. Well, two very
1: distinctly different kinds of war. Um, I mean, in, in the case of uh, the, the Kuwait War, uh, as it's the first Gulf War, uh, you had a dictatorship, uh, a huge dictatorship, that just went in and stepped on a little country Um um, that may not have been like a shining example of democracy and liberty, but nonetheless was not doing any harm to to the to the rest of the world, and that's just not a lesson that um, we want uh, the rest of the world to uh, uh, to learn uh, to do that kind of thing. Or there goes Holland, there goes Denmark, there goes Belgium. Uh, you know, this very same sort of thing that set off World War II. It was you know the invasion of Poland. That, in violation of belgian neutrality um, so we went in and with a great deal of force and exercised that force with uh, very considerable wisdom and stopped when we were done it was a, it was a limited operation in fact some would, I, I was there for the whole thing so so i'd speak with a little bit of authority uh here is that in terms of leaving the um um, the, the so-called Marsh Arabs in the, in the Bas- Basra area and, 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 and uh, the, the part of Iraq that was closest to the Gulf, uh, they rebelled after that war, hoping to get rid of Saddam Hussein. <clears throat> and we didn't. We did nothing to support them. I, so one might. Honestly, say that 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 we stopped too soon, but but we but we did stop when mission was accomplished. Mission was accomplished; and it was done, and Kuwait was restored to sovereignty. I was back there not too long afterwards, and they rebuilt the place, and um, uh, that was a very different matter from um, the sort of quagmires that we've involved ourselves in since. Um, so yeah, I think we do have to distinguish between it, and it's not to, that I, I'm not somebody who's, who believes that that force should never be used in international relations. I'm afraid there are times when nothing else will do.
0: Here's an interesting question that comes from Carlos in Chile. He says it's common to hear as an argument, "This outrage would never happen in the USA," and 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 I. I'm not sure whether he means he hears that in Chile or we say that in the United States, sometimes we see what's going on in the rest of the world. But he says it's, you hear, this would never happen in the USA until you scratch the surface and uh, surface and discover there's plenty of bad government going on in the United States. Why do you think the image overseas is so much better than reality?
1: Well, it's comparative, uh, uh, to, to a certain extent. We, uh, Yeah, we, we, you know, just looking at ourselves, looking in the mirror, we see all our faults, just as I see my 72-year-old self every morning in the mirror. One of the reasons I don't shave anymore is (laughs) to to keep from having to look in that mirror. Uh, It's easy enough for us to see our faults. But when you go around the world and you discover the faults that the rest of the world has, it's a great comparative experience. Uh, I don't know uh, uh, Chile and I can't uh, I, I can't speak for the situation right there but my experience in most of the world has been that um, corruption is far more obvious and evident and pervasive uh, in, in all levels of government than it is uh, here in the United States not that we don't have our problems um, that that the, the kind of ethnic and racial hatred uh, that that we so deplore here in the United States, and rightly so, is much worse in, in many parts of the world. Um, I mean, I covered the Bosnia War. You know, I mean, you, you, I mean, nobody on the face of the earth, other than a Serb and a Bosnian, can tell a Serb and a Bosnian apart. You know, I mean, it was. I I I, I think I. When I witnessed my first battle at in Bihac, I said it was you know the unspellables shooting the unpronounceables. Um, but boy, the hatred was there; they could tell. And um, and so and so many other you know our, our rule of law is better, our protection of free expression is better than it is even in places like England or 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 or, or, or developed areas of of, of Europe, um, and our economic opportunities are. We wouldn't have anything you know we, we wouldn't be thinking about immigration if if this weren't a f- fantastically attractive place from 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 an economic point of view. So comparatively speaking we're we're doing really well. want we'll things to be proud about.
0: So to get back to complaining about our own country, um you were very critical <laughs> of Congress. Bob wants to know, do you think term limits would would move? Congress into thinking more about the public interest and less about their own?
1: Well, that's interesting, because that's an argument that I had for many years with Cato's ex-president, Ed Crane. Uh, Ed and I went back and forth, and Ed was always very much in favor of term limits, and I was uh, dubious about them, because I I thought that the likelihood was, especially with uh, seats in the House of Representatives, that the likelihood was that those, instead of there being like one long-time, rather corrupt and ineffective, forever uh, a holder of that seat, perpetual uh, uh, Congressperson, that that seat would belong to a certain interest group, and so you'd always have, even if even if it changed every two years, you would always have that labor seat from from Michigan, you know, that, that, that 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 certain like farm seat, you know, from from somewhere in the Corn Belt um, that, that, that social conservative seat from somewhere down south, that, that inner city seat, and, 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 so that you would just be, like, changing. So I said, you know, Ed, do you want a, a, a dog who knows where all the bones are buried, or do you want a dog that's going to dig up the whole yard, you know? And then one day, uh, over cocktails, as Ed and I sometimes had, Ed said to me, PJ, uh, make one, one last attempt after these 25 years or so of arguing with you about term limits. Let me just say one more thing. He said, everybody in Washington is opposed to them. And I said, Ed, you just won your argument.
0: Yes, I think that's a good point. If all of the special interests and politicians are against it, There must be something they think it would do to their power.
1: Indeed, Uh, indeed.
0: Is is the U.S. in the middle of a new Great Awakening with woke culture being one of the new religious waves?
1: Oh, gosh, let's hope not. You know, I mean, woke culture seems to be the idea that what you should do is be perpetually aware of injustice To not be able to sleep or eat or drink because there's so much injustice out there. And all this injustice is hooked together in one great big sort of interstitial uh, uh, injustice blob. And you've got to spend all your time being aware of it. And uh, being aware of it seems to consist of mainly of of talking other people's ear off about it and and, and 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 bothering other people who are thought to be not sufficiently aware or not aware at all or whatever. And this just doesn't seem to me like a kind of fun that is gonna last for very long. I think that this, this is going to, um, it, it's extremely boring and I think it's going to end up boring even its, pra- its practitioners and its proponents. So I think we'll get over this. Um, Past experience with Great Awakenings in the United States, uh, which have mostly been religious, but not always. There was a populist Great Awakening at the end of the 19th century. Past history of these things is that they have their 15 minutes, and
0: then we move on. Here's a question that relates to you professionally, but also to the state of the country. seemed to me uh, in your book, you implied at some point that all the people who read books are rich or baby boomers or something. Are you worried about a decline in literacy or seriousness in the United States? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is,
1: you know, reading is hard, even if what you're reading is something as frothy and light and insubstantial as what I write. Reading is still hard work. You have to translate those words from the page in your mind. You have to create mental images to go with those words. Just watching junk on television or on the computer is a much easier experience. Uh, And I am worried that we're losing the discipline um, that requires for even for light reading. And that means that um, our view of things is going to be increasingly superficial sensationalist and short very brief attention spans are being one thing about reading even if you're reading junk even if you're reading you know the worst sort of murder mysteries or you know um, uh, geopolitical thrillers of not even the well-written ones but but the badly written ones it requires a concentration span, and that concentration span is very useful in every other endeavor in life. Um, that's why I tell, I tell my kids, you know, get off that screen, open a book, any book. It can be Agatha Christie, that's fine. I don't care what you're reading, but just read, you, you, because you, you may gain no information from the book, but you will gain this attention span that you will find
0: worthwhile
1: everywhere else in life.
0: I do wonder. Do you think your teenagers, because of their texting, actually have written more words as teenagers than you ever did?
1: Yeah, but they were short words and they were misspelled.
0: <laughs> True, but they knew what they meant.
1: <laughs> I suppose you're right. Yeah, yeah. You can't say that it's uh, uh, that writing has gone out of style because texting has brought it right, right back in. But when was the last time someone actually wrote you a letter sealed up in an envelope?
0: That's pretty rare. But it's been a while. Yeah. Um, Here's a question that I don't think economists can answer, so we'll pose it to you. Um, Yeah, right. (laughs) Because
1: they know what they're talking about and I don't, so I can
0: answer it. Has the pandemic wiped out the economic bull run or do you think it will come back? I mean, it's sort of back, but is it back?
1: Uh, You know, our actual, what we know historically about uh, disease epidemics is that uh, economically, we tend to uh, uh, recover from them pretty quickly, uh, which is one of the reasons that until this thing came along, we had sort of forgotten about the Spanish flu epidemic, even though it took an enormous number of lives and caused a great deal of suffering, um, because we 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 tend to to recover rather quickly from these. Um, this one may be a little more difficult because instead of recovering from the disease itself, forgetting all the suffering that went into it, and 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 and, and you know, and sort of not remembering the dead people. Um, in, in this case, we're essentially in the middle of an epidemic, while trying to limit and 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 prevent that that that, that epidemic from reaching full f- force and and, and 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 you know doing the most the amount of damage that an epidemic like this in the, in in every period of the past would have done much much more damage than this one, and these prevention um, um, these mechanisms of prevention um, are themselves very disruptive. We're paying a price for this, and, um, uh, and and you know, with very bad leadership in Washington and pretty confusing science uh, 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 and, and and changing science about this, is very hard to tell when and if we're doing the right thing. So it, it may be a slower comeback, but the, in the historical past, actually, the Black Plague. I mean, unless you died from it, and about half of people did, uh, so it wasn't so good for them. It actually probably put an end to the serf system. Uh, it, it caused a labor shortage uh, in, in 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 Europe that resulted in the rise of the middle class and the and the and small proprietorship by uh, previously completely oppressed peasants and so on. Uh, so the net benefits of the back Black Plague, economically speaking, um, were uh, uh, were probably positive. But economics is one of those things like war
0: where we, we, we count the victories, but we don't really count the dead. All right, I think we're about out of time. So I just want to ask you, your new book is A Cry from the Far Middle. Is there a takeaway you want people to get after reading that book?
1: Yeah, go back to just being mad at each other, you know, quit throwing. You know, it's like a, anybody who's been in a, a marriage or partnership or over long term knows that you don't, um, um, uh, or family, uh, you don't maintain that kind of close relationship without having arguments. But there's always a stage in an argument where the the kitchen sink danger comes in, where where, where instead of arguing about whether to buy a new car, which is where the argument started out, it gets down to, and you you leave wet bath towels on the bed all the time, and your socks are all over the floor, and so on and so forth. And we seem to have reached that point in um, America needs marriage counseling. Keep the argument on the subject. And argue. let us argue by all means, let us argue as much as we want and as hard as we want. And, 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 and even, even a bit of yelling and shouting is, is fine, but let us confine the argument to the subject at hand and quit hating on each other.
0: All right, great. The book is A Cry from the Far Middle. It is available literally everywhere books can be found. Um, I wanna thank everybody for joining us. Uh, We had a lot of questions come in, and I apologize we weren't able to get to all of them. Uh, The video recording of this event will be available on Cato's webpage, hopefully later today. Feel free to go back and watch it again, post it on Facebook, Uh, tell your friends about it, and we look forward to seeing you at our next event. Thank you, PJ. Thanks, everybody.